is Jenna Greslow, and I'm a research fellow here at UNESCO. As part of our ongoing podcast series, Talking About Culture, today we will be discussing information and communication technologies, the key to safeguarding intangible heritage. This particular podcast is unique in that it is youth-led. I am joined by founder of PACE48 and UNESCO Youth Forum participant, Tamara Richardson, who is calling in from Australia. Tamara, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> the organization you created, PACE48, uh, focuses on fostering cultural education through youth-centered, youth-led dialogue across the 48 countries of the Asia-Pacific region. Why have you made empowering youth and safeguarding intangible cultural heritage such a big part of these efforts? Um, well, I just think that youth are incredibly innovative, and if you look at um, you know, Generation Y and the Millennials, we are the generations which were raised with Industry 4.0 and we're the primary consumers of technology, the internet and so on. We're also the largest youth population history has ever seen, right? And so currently at this time, I think it's really important that we empower young people to use these resources and their skills and their knowledge um, to develop innovative solutions to some of our problems. So, for example, in the context of safeguarding intangible cultural heritage, um, I, I see that the way we're safeguarding that heritage, like most things, will adapt uh, to the current pace of the world. So by working with diverse populations of youth, um, the general consensus amongst these populations is that they believe that their policymakers or social and corporate leaders um, still see culture as being of lesser importance within national budgets and so on, um, as opposed to infrastructure or health or, or something like that. But the creative industries continues to grow, so really merging youth empowerment with safeguarding intangible cultural heritage can yield amazing outcomes, I think. Absolutely. You mentioned that uh, youth have grown up with technologies, and I wanted to ask you a bit about the role of new technologies in safeguarding intangible heritage. In your experience, how do communities react to tech-based solutions to this topic, both young and old individuals? Um, I, I definitely think that it, it depends on the community that you work with. So Pace 48, for example, we do work with a very diverse group of young people who have different experiences. They've been raised in different contexts. So if you look at the needs of those communities, um, you know, some communities require uh, additional support, for example, in strengthening their legal systems to protect the safeguarding of their cultural heritage, and we see that a lot across Africa. Um, some communities are more resistant towards integrating ICTs and information and communication technologies into the safeguarding practices, uh, as well as you look towards Asia, where a number of those communities at the moment are really integrating technologies into their development narrative into their social and economic uh, narrative itself. So I guess it depends on which community you look at, because I, I guess the greatest thing that we've learned at PACE48 is that it's contextual, and the needs of one community is incredibly diverse to the needs of another community with respect to the use of ICTs for safeguarding intangible cultural heritage. 
Great. And it's clear that there's a lot of diversity across the region uh, that you're focusing on. And based on what you've shared so far, it's clear that ICTs can be creatively used to protect and preserve intangible heritage. So my own personal work focuses on the digital divide, or rather the idea that there is a gap between those with access to ICTs and the internet and those without. And I'm wondering if your work and your organization has had to confront this challenge at all, and how youth in remote villages and rural areas also engage in safeguarding cultural heritage through both physical and virtual networks. Absolutely. I mean, I myself, you know, even though I am from Australia, I am from a very uh, rural part of Australia. So uh, the very notion with engaging with multilateral spaces like UNESCO or large organizations or international organizations is profound within the, the local discussion. Not many people are aware of those platforms or the opportunities that exist. And so I'm consciously aware of the very diverse cross-section of young people that we need to constantly interact with to ensure that you know, development is inclusive regardless of the community in which we're targeting. So with respect to accessing these remote villages and rural populations, I cannot stress enough and we're constantly reminded and focusing on how we can foster relationships across the sectors, so with the private sector, the public sector, and civil society, and those actors who are grassroots on the ground in those remote villages and in those rural communities who can work with us to bridge that divide. Has there been anything about your work in this area that surprised you? I mean, you, you mentioned that you've You've had to work with uh, various sectors as far as fostering relationships. I imagine you're not just working with youth in these cases. Um, So do you see a generational divide between older and younger individuals and how they communicate about this topic and how uh, they either differ or share common goals in protecting and preserving intangible cultural heritage? Well, I definitely, based on my experience with the field, I don't necessarily think that it's as much of a generational divide as opposed to a community divide. So it comes back um, to what I was saying before about how the approach that you have in working with the community and ensuring that any efforts are led by that community differs from one context to the next. And so what you'll find is that some communities, the generations, there is this intergenerational convergence of ideas. And, you know, the older generation is looking towards the younger generation and they see them as this great asset towards safeguarding their heritage. Whereas in other contexts, there's a hierarchical structure which prevents some of those um, new ideas which integrate modern technologies into that safeguarding narrative as well. So I guess a a big surprise for me when working in this space was we came across particular communities who openly expressed to our team that they would rather see elements of their intangible cultural heritage die out with a generation than record them because of the, the sacredness around the very act of transmitting that. So I guess we have to be reminded of that as well when we talk about ICTs and technology is that what are we losing by permanently recording elements of a culture? So that was a great big surprise for me. And that really kind of made me look at our work and what we were doing and slow us down in terms of working with technology in that space. Once again, we are joined by Tamara Richardson, UNESCO Youth Forum participant, 
We are continuing a discussion of information and communication technologies, or ICTs, as tools for safeguarding intangible heritage. Tamara, through your work in the Asia-Pacific region, you must have heard many success stories about the usage of new technologies implemented uh, for good safeguarding practice. Can you share with us maybe an innovative example about how to use ICTs in the transmission of cultural heritage? Of course, there's actually a great example from uh, another participant of the UNESCO Youth Forum, Elena. Um, she recorded and produced the first music video in the Calibit language. And that very act of using those technologies to record that song and then share that with her community identified the needs um, and her way of safeguarding that particular language in itself. So it wasn't necessarily um, the product, but it was the process of capturing that and ensuring that future generations could look at that as well. So I've mentioned that you participated in the UNESCO Youth Forum, and now and now you're actually mentioning other participants as well, which is which is very cool. I, I'm just curious, what was the experience like participating in this forum? Uh, it was absolutely phenomenal. You know, Europe is uh, a, a completely world away from the Pacific, um, but being able to be in that environment and have direct contact with the staff of UNESCO. Uh, and to ask questions about the, the more technical elements of our work uh, was what we really appreciated, as well as being in an environment where you've got these young change makers who are using ICTs, not only in culture, but to address other major development concerns across the world as well. So you do have your opinions and ideas challenged, and I guess that's what was great about that space. And were there any particular tools that the forum provided you with that better promote access to cultural education? Um, for sure. Like, not just the, the team from the ICH unit at UNESCO. It was great to be able to meet um, some of those team members and learn more about the work of the unit itself. Um, but I guess the, the amount of resources that UNESCO has available that young changemakers or anybody, organizations, can access uh, to, to better inform their work as well. That's what surprised me was how much there is publicly accessible that we can use in our work through UNESCO's website. And is there anything organizations like UNESCO can do to better support young changemakers like yourself? Yeah, I definitely think um, uh, a particular, I, I guess, stereotype which exists around spaces like UNESCO that have a lot of soft power in the world is that young people are always looking for financial support. But if we look beyond that, um, I, I guess for Case 48 and a lot of other youth organizations, we really want from these spaces a lot of technical support or um, guidance in how we can ensure that we have best practice in our projects and that anything that we're implementing also contributes towards international frameworks or conventions like the UNESCO 2003 Convention on the Safeguarding of Intangible Cultural Heritage, for example, and the role that civil society and young people play towards those particular indicators or the goals of the SDGs and things like that. So for me particularly and for PACE and for a number of other participants from the UNESCO Youth Forum, uh, the thing that we're looking for is for that guidance and that mentoring uh, out of spaces like UNESCO itself. 
And do you think it's possible to receive this guidance perhaps in digital spaces like the space you created? Or do you think it needs to be more one-on-one, face-to-face relationships that really foster that support that you need to, to grow their ideas? Yeah, I definitely think that, you know, we're all humans, so we do love that person-to-person relationship um, and that one-on-one time. Um, but when you've got teams all across the world, um, ICTs and the virtual spaces really do contribute to the workflow uh, and how effective you can be in implementing your work. So I definitely believe that it's a mixture of both the virtual world and the offline world as well. However, when you do live thousands of kilometers away from each other, um, then the virtual world does act as a substitute. Well, Tamara, thank you again uh, for taking time to speak with me. I honestly can't wait to see what you do next. Once again, this is Jenna Greslow of UNESCO. For those at home, we hope you'll continue to engage with this series, Talking About Culture, And until next time, have a wonderful day.